You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome everyone out in podcast land. We left off last time in our history series discussing how Herzl stepped up to the podium at the first Zionist Congress and there was a tumultuous cheer. An elderly, most elderly person at the Congress got up, placed a yarmulke on his head and recited the blessing Shechianu, God has sanctified us and allowed us to achieve this very moment. They were applauding, cheering, whistling, and one person, a British delegate at the Congress, said, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. By the rivers of Basel we sat down and resolved to weep no more. By the rivers of Another thing about Herzl and Zionism, as Professor Gil Troy from McGill University points out in the CBC video, is the jujitsu maneuver where you take something as negative as anti-Semitism and the Jews feeling totally unwelcome and you turn it around to the aspiration to build their own homeland afresh. Herzl's very famous entry into his diary after the Congress proved to be clairvoyant, if not in fact prophetic. And he wrote, if I had to sum up the Basel Congress in one word, which I shall do not do openly, it would be this. At Basel I founded the Jewish state. If I were to say this today, I'd be greeted by universal laughter. In five years, perhaps, and certainly in fifty years, everyone will know it. And in fact, for fifty years later the UN voted to divide Palestine into a Jewish and an Arab state. And nine months later, the state of Israel was born. Then, Herzl begins traveling the world to get support for his plan, starting with Constantinople. Then, in 1903, the need is really highlighted with the Kishna pogrom. But as we've already discussed this in an earlier episode, we continue. Four months later, there's another Zionist Congress, and the Kishna pogrom is in the backdrop. Herzl says, I have good news and bad news for those assembled. Like the story where the doctor says to this old man, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is you look great. The bad news is you're not as good as you look. The one up and on this is that a doctor called up one of his patients and he said to him, I have bad news and I have worse news. And the fellow said, oh, no, no, very, 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 no, no, okay, what's, what's the bad news? The bad news is is that your lab results came back and you have 24 hours left to live. Oh no, oh no. What could be worse than this? What's the worst news? We've been looking for you for almost a day. So Herzl says the good news is that Great Britain wishes to help. The bad news is how they wish to help. And that would be not by offering to help in acquiring the land of Palestine, but rather by offering Uganda. It was at the 5th Zionist Congress in Basel in 1901 that Herzl, a dreamer but always a pragmatist, directed the creation of the Jewish National Fund, better known as the JNF. 
and the goal of the JNF was to buy land in Palestine. Herzl said, and I quote, the Jewish people will not only be the donors, but also the owners. In order to buy land, funds were required, and a worldwide campaign was launched. Donation receptacles known as the Blue Boxes, and any baby boomer will remember these tin cans, that were ubiquitous. They were in the homes, all over the homes. They were in the synagogues, they were in the schools. And the Jews greeted this campaign with enthusiasm at the very prospect that land in Israel will finally belong to them. Part of Herschel's plan was to buy cheap, swampy land. They particularly focused on uninhabited land. Jews were paying exorbitant prices for land from absent Arab landowners. In no way were the Jews driving the Arabs out of the land or grabbing land from them. Whoever makes such an assertion, it's totally false and has no historical basis. It was not unusual for Jews to pay 10 times the price and the value of the land that was deemed by the Arab landowners to be totally unusable and worthless. And while there might have been upon occasions negotiations, ultimately a purchase was never rejected because of the price. The land was to become the land of Israel, and every inch that was purchased was developed. This meant draining the swamps and making drainage basins that would enable the erection of a settlement. By 1914, there were nearly 114,000 Jews living in Palestine, and 50 agricultural villages were started. Initially, the JNF purchased whatever was available. But by the 1930s, it became very clear that sooner or later, there would be a Jewish state surrounded by Arab neighbors. So the JNF concentrated their purchases on the edges and the borders of Palestine in order to broaden the borders of the future Jewish state. Prior to the work of the JNF, the funding for the Jewish settlements was bankrolled by wealthy European businessmen. In the mid-19th century, Jerusalem was a city marked by poverty, disease, and despair. The entire Jewish population was confined to what we call today the Old City, which was 25,000 people confined to one square kilometer. The elderly religious Jews lived on charity, as we've already described, and Sir Moses Montefiore was appalled at their conditions and he wished to help. Boy, did he help. We've already discussed several wealthy individuals who have contributed most generously to building the settlement in Israel. But Montefiore was a league in his own, a league of his own. In 1885, he made the first purchase of Jewish acquisition of land in Palestine. He bought 25 acres of orange groves in Jaffa, and Jewish settlers could be trained there as farmers. Five years later, he turned his attention to Jerusalem, who bought property outside the city's walls from the city's governor. This was the first settlement of what would become the new Israel, the new issue of the new settlement. He paid an outrageous amount for undeveloped land. Montefiore convinced the Jews to leave the walled Jerusalem and to move to land which he had purchased. He called this development Mishkanot Shananim, a peaceful habitation which is again based on the words of the prophets of Ishayahu Isaiah. This was the first Jewish settlement in Palestine. Jews reluctantly moved there as living outside the city walls was dangerous at, at that time due to lawlessness and bandits. Montefiore incentivized those poor Jewish families to move outside the city walls with financial inducement. However, they would sneak back into the walled Jerusalem at night so they could sleep because they were afraid of the Arab marauders. 
Montfiore built a windmill to provide cheap flour to poor Jews and increased their food supply, and there wasn't a single bakery in all of Jerusalem. Someone wanted bread, there was nowhere to, bake flour, to buy flour and no mill to purchase it from. They had to grind the wheat and bake the bread on their own. Montefiore's windmill was built in an area which later became known as Yemin Moshe neighborhood, provide cheap flour to poor Jews, and it still stands. It's in a fantab location. It's called Yemin Moshe, the neighborhood. And it's a fantab location for dates because of the view and romantic setting. It has become the lover's lane of the religious Jewish world. Uh, someone once complained to me, this is years ago, there were so many dates on a Saturday night. Everybody was bumping into each other. No privacy whatsoever. He said to me, I should have been standing on top of the windmill like a flight controller. Picture the chessboard. Rook bishop to e4 and king's knight to e3. Anyways, Moses Montefiore donated large sums of money to promote industry, business, economic development, education, and health among the Jewish community in the Middle East, including in Jerusalem. Later on, Montefiore established an adjacent neighborhood south of Jaffa Road, it was the Ohel Moshe neighborhood for Sephardic Jews and the Maskeret Moshe neighborhood for Ashkenazi Jews. From his retirement until the day he died, he devoted himself to philanthropy, particularly alleviating the distress of Jews abroad. This is some repertoire. He went to the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire in 1840 to liberate Jews from, 10 Syrian Jews from Damascus who were arrested after a blood libel. He traveled to Rome in 1858 to try to free a Jewish youth who'd been seized by the Catholic Church after an alleged baptism by a Catholic servant. He traveled to Russia in 1846, and he was received by the Tsar, and again in 1872. He traveled to Morocco in 1864 and to Romania in 1867. It was these missions that made him a folk hero of near mythological proportions among the oppressed Jews of Eastern Europe, in 1854, his friend Judah Turo, named after Turo College, a very wealthy American Jew, died, having bequeathed money to fund Jewish residential settlement in Palestine. Montefiore was appointed executor of his will, and he used the funds for a variety of projects aimed at encouraging the Jews to engage in productive labor. Montefiore wanted to enable the old use of the old settlement to become self-supporting in anticipation of the establishment of a Jewish homeland. He established a printing press and a textile factory, helped finance several agricultural colonies. He also attempted to acquire arable land for Jewish cultivation, but this, of course, was very much hampered by the Ottoman restrictions on selling land to non-Muslims, or I should better say, not selling land to non-Muslims. The Jews of the old Yishuv referred to their patron as Hassar Montefiore, the prince, or simply the prince, Montefiore, or just the prince, a title perpetuated in Hebrew literature and song. For me, the song sung by Yoram Gaon sings about him always moves me. And for all of Montefiore's good and philanthropic deeds, he was awarded phenomenal old age, which he used so productively. So we'll play the song or part of the song, and I'll try and give my modest translation. When the Prince Montefiore turned 80 years old, the angels dressed in white came to him and said to him, It's time for you to go above. God is waiting for you. He said, But what can I do? I'm just simply too busy. There's too much trouble for our brethren. 
They said that there are pogroms in Russia. I can't leave the Jews now. And when Montefiore turned 90 years old, they said to him, it's time for you to come up. They're waiting for you above. He said, but what can I do? There's a blood libel in Damascus. I have to intervene. And when Montefiore turned 100 years old, they said, please, it's time for you to come above. And he said, but I've given so much money, francs and sterlings, but it's never enough. I still have more work to do. I have to build one more room in Keverocho, in the gravesite for Rachel, our mother, and I have to also lift up the Western Wall. I have so much more to do. And when he turned to 101, the angels came down from above, they gave him their final kiss, and he finally ascended. It's truly a beautiful song that Israel's Frank Sinatra, Yoram Gaon, sings with great justice. It's a pity that translation in English is not what Montefiore deserves. In 1882, 17 families from Eastern Europe founded a colony on the western coast, that is the western coast of Israel, of course. They called it Rishon Zion, as we've already discussed, the first of Zion. It was there that the first Israeli flag was created. Agriculture was quite a challenge, and there in the Baron Edmund de Rothschild, the place was sand dunes, and you cannot grow wheat, and you cannot grow apple trees on sand. And even if you succeed in planting something, and it takes a little root, when the first sandstorm comes, it destroys all that effort. Rothschild got them started with orange groves, and then he turned his attention to grapevines. Grapevines do very well in sand, and they started making wine. It was very good wine. And just 18 years after Rothschild planted his first vine, and then the Carmel, that's the name of the winery, won a gold medal in Paris's World Fair. Today, Rishon Lezion, that settlement, is Israel's fourth largest city, and Carmel wine is sold in over 40 countries. I should say 40 countries. Maybe it's even more with the UAE. But then again, I'm not going to get into the question of whether Muslims drink wine, or may they drink wine. And uh, it's sold all over, and the business is a flourishing business. In 1906... Jewish settlers purchased 60 plots of land on the Mediterranean coast. Three years later, in 1909, 66 Jewish families gathered on the sand dunes to divide that land. They used a lottery of names which were written on seashells. They replaced them in a box and they randomly pulled out names which would assign each person which plot of land. And this was the official beginning of Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv, yam kachol, ir bachol, Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv, at kachol, Tel Aviv, rakachat kamochani yodea. Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv, yam kachol, ir bachol, Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv, at kachol, Tel Aviv, rakachat kamochani yodea. The site where the settlers had met later became the site of the Tel Aviv Museum, and it was on that very location that the Jewish state was declared. Herzl sought British permission to settle the Jews who so desperately needed to escape Russia and either Cyprus or the Sinai Peninsula, both of which were under British control and close to Palestine. But the British refused. They only offered them land in East Africa, which we call Uganda, but I'm not convinced it could actually be Nigeria. With no other choice, Herzl accepted the offer and presented the plan at the Zionist Congress in 1903, which had disastrous results. Although Zionism means, obviously, going to Zion and going to East Africa 
doesn't exactly qualify, going to East Africa was only intended as a temporary measure. The motion barely passed, but the Russian delegation stormed out after this vote in protest. Among them was a young man named Chaim Weizmann, who we will be devoting a lot of time to discuss. The revolution of the Russian delegation basically broke Herzl's heart. It broke his already weakened heart, that his word was no longer accepted as the gospel truth. He concluded the Congress by raising his right hand and pledged, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its cunning and its skill. The last words he would say at a Zionist Congress as he died the subsequent year. I wish to thank Yochai Briskman for permission to play Yaakov Shweki's rendition of Imishkachech, If I Forget Thee, O Jerusalem. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.